Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Iruk the Yen of Chacht Erechor. Agasuligum a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfin. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nachvetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestin Echo. Vientolum again omgrev or corn rachtum. Yatakshatorin Graven or Corson, Elistuhalagus Gimina Fracht, Gorokligs or Dukashin Echor. Only Venown, Thordorakshin. Shachten. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Listeners should be aware that today's episode of the Indo Daily contains distressing content. For most of her young life, Amy Foley carried the most sinister of secrets. She was brutally raped and sexually abused by her father. Amy first spoke with the Irish independence of Van Murray, and today she shares her story with the Indo Daily. I'm Denise Callanan, and here is Amy's story. Amy, your father, Michael O'Donoghue from Ennistymon in County Clare, he was sentenced and jailed in December of last year. Now, we will come back to that day in court, but can you first tell me when the abuse began? So, Denise, when I remember my abuse starting, um, it was all childhood abuse. So my childhood is very fragmented, so I don't remember a lot of it, but I can remember the abuse more vividly from the ages of eight to 18. So when it was eight, it was just a lot of emotional abuse, a lot of derogatory terms be, like being called at me. And then when I was 11, it was then around the physical abuse started. When I'd be sitting down and my father would be leaving a room, every time he'd walk out, he'd hit me in the arm or he'd hit me in the leg. And then unfortunately, when I was 12, that was when the sexual abuse began. And it was, the grooming was going on unbeknownst to me since a young age. But like I said, a lot of it is all very fragmented for me. And I can't remember anything really and truly before the age of eight, only very, very vague memories. Even then with them vague memories, I can still remember at the age of six when I began to learn how to tie my shoes. It was something that as a child you were supposed to learn how to do. It's supposed to be a learning experience. But when I was six years old and trying to do that, when I couldn't get it straight away, my father called me a lot of derogatory terms, calling me every name under the sun because I couldn't do such a simple task that he was able to do. So he just liked to belittle me about it. But from a very, very young age, that's when the abuse started with me. And the grooming and the brainwashing, Amy, it was so intense. You didn't know any different as a child. No, see, I had no idea. And that was almost the beauty about it, purely for the fact of my father had me so brainwashed that he made me believe it was another form of love. It was what my brain and my body told me so I could that I could survive 
the abuse that I was being put through. So in my own head, to justify the groping and the molestations that were going on, I told myself it was another form of love because my father didn't get to see me every weekend or see me every day. So it's just, it's amazing to me how the mind tries to get the body to cope because like I said, he brainwashed me into believing it was a normal father-daughter relationship. And that as well started from when I was 12 and he introduced me to pornography. He showed me the category of father-daughter. And from 12 years old, being shown father-daughter porn. And that was something that was always heavily spoke about. So I didn't know any different, unfortunately, because that is what he led me to believe from such a young age. And then it was it was as you were a young teenager, Amy, that the abuse became far more sinister again. Can you tell us a little bit about this and about the influence of drugs and alcohol that he used as well? So like I said earlier, Denise, the abuse started from such a young age, emotionally and physically. But when it did begin sexually, at the age of 12, that was when my father first introduced me to substances such as alcohol and drugs. Like my father introduced me over my life or introduced cocaine and marijuana into my life. And he also introduced hardcore liquor. When I was 12, my father had me on these substances and I was taking them in his company and in his care. So my father always told me if I ever, if I ever wanted to do any sort of drugs, that it would be him that would get them into the house. Any drug that I wanted to try, he would do it with me first so that I was in a safe environment. So I knew that if something went wrong, he was there to protect me. It wasn't just drugs or alcohol. It was never one or the other. It was always both. There was always a correlation with both with my father. So... The abuse then progressively got worse because the night he introduced me to drugs and alcohol was the first night he ever sexually assaulted me. And that was the first time I've ever, well, that was the first time I have any recollection of him sexually assaulting me is the best way I can come across in saying that. But then as I, from that night on, it then became a constant in my life. But as I grew up and got older, so ages like, Although 12 and 13, there isn't much in the difference in my father. I, in my father's eyes, there must have been because the abuse just got more sinister, sinister as the years went on, eventually leading to the night when I was 15 years old and my father raped me. So it was always, it was always such a sinister process. And Unfortunately, all the abuse continued until I was 18 years old. And on December of 2019, was, that was the last time in which my father sexually assaulted me. And in the January of 2020 was the last time he emotionally abused me and physically abused me again. Purely for the fact of in that moment, that was when I knew enough was enough and I had to disclose to my family or to more members of my family. There was a particular incident when you were 18 in a college bar in Maynooth and up to this point your mind had 
really helped you cope with the abuse by blocking it all out. But there was an incident that night that had a particular effect on you. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So that night I was in my first year in college, Denise, and it was I was being like every college student. I was going out for a night out with all of my friends. So I had gotten dolled up to the nines. I had been seeing someone in college at the time already. So I wasn't going out to look for any interaction really with any other mate, like man in any sexual way. I was just going out to enjoy my night. About 20 minutes going into the nightclub, um, I went out for a cigarette and I was met by two men my own age. And it was then I was restricted to a wall. And the feeling of restriction that I got from them two men was so, so, so familiar to me that it put my body into survival mode. But as I ran after this attack, unfortunately, although the feeling was so familiar to me, it was still so unknown. So it was after that for about a month that my head was slowly processing it. And it wasn't until I got a message from my father disclosing that I had already had sex. And now, Denise, I would never, although sexual, like it was highly sexualized conversations between my father, I would never personally speak about my own virginity or having sexual intercourse with anyone as I still felt that wasn't something I was comfortable with talking about to my father. So when he texted me stating that I had already had sex before, I was shocked. I was stunned. I was in disbelief. I was like, oh my God, did something happen to me at the hands of my father? So I asked him, I said, what do you mean I'm lost? And it was in that response when he came back with, you're not sure, and then called me another derogatory term. And it was in that moment that I put my hand to my fist. And Denise, it was the first time I realized, I was like, oh my God, I believe something happened to me and I don't think it was a dream. And then that, in that moment, there was the flashbacks slowly, slowly coming back. So after he stated that, I got a flashback of the night I was raped. This moment had a massive effect on you. You you gave up your education, you deferred your education, you gave up, you know, sport, which was a massive part of your social life. But this was the moment that you finally confided in your mother and she she put things into simple words for you, didn't she? She had seven little words that finally helped you stand up to your father. Yeah, she told me that when I disclosed to my mother at first, I defended my father. I defended him to her saying that he was a good father. He didn't see what was going on behind closed doors. He loved me in his own twisted way. But it was in that moment when my mother looked at me and I could see the heartbreak and despair written on her face. She looked at me and said, but that's not what a father does. A father is supposed to protect you and love you. And he never did it. And it was in that moment that I realized. But also, and what people still don't understand, the whole Michael O'Donoghue had on me, Denise, I told my mother on December 13th of 2019 what my father had done to me. 
And on December 24th, I still went up to his house for Christmas and stayed there over Christmas of 2019, purely for the fact of I was terrified if I didn't go up because I had made previous engagements with him, he'd realise that I had I had come to terms or I could I had finally remembered all of his wrongdoings. And this was all part of his controlling nature, Amy. Oh, completely. Like I, no matter how much, and my mother, I cannot stress this enough, begged and pleaded with me, do not go up to his house, please. I would not listen to her at all. I knew I was going to be up there for Christmas no matter what, purely for the fact of I was too scared that if I didn't go up, what would happen to me? Or what would he figure out that I know? And how bad will the abuse get down? So Amy, to bring us forward to December 2021 and that day in the Central Criminal Court when your father was sentenced and you got to read your victim impact statement, to note that there was no trial because your father had pleaded guilty to the offences. But can you tell us a little bit about that day of the sentencing in the courts here in Dublin? When I sat inside in the courtroom first, I was hopeful, I was lo- I was hoping that the sentence would portray some bit of the turmoil and trauma that he put me through. So when Judge Keane started with the headline sentence of 12 years, although nothing will ever be enough in my heart or in my mind or in my eyes, purely for the fact of, for me, I will always have a life sentence. I It was just a, that slight bit of vindication that I needed, knowing that it wasn't just myself and my family it was other people seeing that my father had done so wrong by me but then unfortunately because my father handed himself in at the early possible or the early possible stage mitigating factors came into account so we knew that the headline sentence was going to drop so the mitigating factors that dropped the 12-year sentence to seven were that he was in full-time employment all of his life, that he handed himself in or pleaded guilty at the early, the earliest possible stage of the court process, that before handing himself into the guards, he organised AA meeting to go to to talk about substances that he has been abusing himself, and he also went to therapy sessions for sexual offenders. Now, I'd also just like to clarify with people that these AA meetings and therapy sessions that my father went to, he only organised after he knew I knew what he had done to me and after he knew I had disclosed to family members. That was the only reason my father went to these meetings as he knew these would be mitigating factors in his case. So with these mitigating factors, it dropped the headline sentence from 12 to 7. Denise, what people need to understand is I was already in that courtroom sitting there with a broken heart. I should never have been there in the first place, especially at the hands of what my father has done to me. So to hear that the man who had put me through so much abuse in my life was only going to get five years, it just broke 
my already broken heart that little bit more. And I just told myself, this can't be true. There has to be a mistake. Did he say five years? No, he couldn't have. And it was then in the blink of an eye, the court was over and the sentence was handed down. That it, re- that it hit me that he didn't, he didn't make a mistake in what he said. He did give five years and it was like time stopped around me. My whole world just crumbled and it was like the weight of it was all on my shoulders once again. It completely re-traumatized me again through an already severely re-traumatizing experience. Amy, that was a devastating moment in court for you and for your mother and your wider circle of family and friends. But you have spoken recently this week about the importance of the victim impact statement as part of our judicial system and what that moment was like for you. Yeah, I have. The the victim impact statement for me is the be all and end all of this case in my eyes because the victim impact statement for me was the first time I could write and actually say everything I wanted to say to my father without him telling me I couldn't, without hearing the condescending, you're not good enough, I'm not going to listen to you because what you say isn't important. He had to sit there in that moment and listen to what I had to say. It was my final nail in the coffin because I feel personally the victim impact statement is so important because a lot of our time, this court process was extremely, extremely hard for me. And I felt like a lot of the time my voice wasn't heard. So when I got to speak and say what I had to say to Michael O'Donoghue, it was the first time in my life I felt heard, that I felt seen and that I needed to be seen by this person who caused me so much anguish. So for me, I believe the victim impact statement should be a serious factor in sentencing in judicial systems purely for the fact of you are hearing firsthand the impact of what this perpetrator has put the survivor, and I won't say victim, the survivor true, because it impacts us, like I spoke about earlier, Denise, in so many ways, whether it is sleep, education, everyday life, like my mental health has suffered ridic- as a ridiculous amount at the hands of my father. He pleaded guilty to 31 counts of sexually assault, one count of rape and one count of producing child porn. Amy, how do you start to mend after such abuse? If I could answer honestly, Denise, I, I would. I don't know. I don't know where you begin. I don't know where you start because personally for myself, this is only the beginning of my journey. Everything that I have experienced, I speak out about because in my own head that heals me because I know I can help so many other people who don't have that voice. How are you feeling now? Do you think that the process was worth it? And and how are you positive about the future? It's hard to look at the future and not be positive. This is the first time where in my life I have had the control to speak, to act, to do as I wish, 
because now I do not have the negativity and carnage that was Michael O'Donoghue in my life. The person stopping me from my future is now eradicated from my life. And it is the first time where I am positive because as cliche as it is, it'll be the first time in 20 years I'll finally be able to live. So in my eyes, I have so much to experience. I have so much to do. I have so much work to do on myself and in this country. And I just cannot wait. I have to be positive on it because if I manifest the positivity that I want, I know I can achieve it. So that's what I want to get out of this is to be the voice and is to live my life and is to act now. Amy, that's fantastic. Um, Like a real positive mindset. From the court's point of view, the sentence is under appeal now with the DPP. So what happens next there? So with the DPP appealing my case, they won't be appealing my case, but they'll be appealing the time and the sentence. So Instead of it only being in front of one judge, it will go up to the Court of Appeals in which it will be viewed and heard in front of three judges. With the three judges, they'll be talking about the sentence handed down. They won't be actually discussing my case. So it'll all be about the sentence in itself. So hopefully, and I really, really do hope that we get a really good outcome now and that we can see a change in the sentence time. And throughout your whole life, Amy, and throughout this whole process, you've had one person who's really been beside you. You have a wonderful relationship with your mum. Can you tell us a little bit about her? My mum's my best friend, to be honest. She, she's always been my rock and my confidant and the person I want to strangle when she's waking me up at eight o'clock in the morning. But she's always been the person beside me whether it was my music, my sport, times I couldn't draw, but she'd tell me I would. She has been such an amazing support for me during this whole process. When I told her, it broke my heart because it was almost like the jigsaw piece finally finally fit for her as she could see why I was always so anxious growing up, why I was always out of school sick. It was finally like the puzzle fit. and. But since then, she has not stopped fighting with me. She has supported me in every way possible. She has taken so much of the strain and burden that I should feel off of me because this is what a parent does. And without my mother, I wouldn't have actually realized how a parent should treat their child. And that's why like, I am so, so grateful. And that's why she is my best friend. Amy, I really hope that this is the start of a journey of recovery and justice for both you and your mom. And you should be so proud of how you've helped other victims of abuse. There'll be people listening to this and reading you in articles this week and they'll just be so empowered by, by your bravery. And we're so grateful that you've shared your story with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so, so much, Denise, for having me. That was the very brave Amy Foley there. And we thank her sincerely for sharing her story with us. If you've been affected by any of the content or details raised in today's podcast, 
please visit our dedicated helplines page at independent.ie forward slash helplines. I'm Denise Callanan and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced by Siobhan Maguire, researched by Tabitha Monaghan and sound by John Smith. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.